Welcome to Different Talks. This is all about leadership, building high-performing digital delivery teams in healthcare. We've got Daniel Leakey with us today from Different, Rita Brockless, and Dr. Sandeep Bansal. So before we kick off, just a few house, housekeeping items. So it is hashtag Different Talks on Twitter, and our Twitter handle is at be different. Um, we do have a Q&A, that is towards the end. So after we've asked our questions, fire some uh, questions at our panel. Uh, there is a Q&A uh, bit on there for you to do that. Raise your hands and we will actually allow you to speak your question rather than just put it somewhere because um, we want more engagement than that. So to kick off, if I can have our panelists introduce themselves, just a short bit. Rita, would you like to go first? Go. <laughs> uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm Rita Brockless. Uh, my background is in organisational development. Uh, both in uh, private and public sector and in particular over the last five years working independently I've been privileged working within uh, health tech partnering with some fantastic leadership teams to deliver things that really matter to society so I'm really pleased to be on the panel today and share some of those insights. Awesome, awesome and uh, Sandeep. Hi um, Joe. thank you for having me, I really appreciate it. Um, so I'm a clinician by background um, and, you know, I've got deep experience in running um, social care, so nursing homes. Um, for the last five years, I've been the founder and CEO of Medic Bleep and what we're doing is changing communications across the NHS, i.e. replacing pages that have been around for 70 years uh, across the NHS um, and, and that's the work that I'm doing and hopefully you'll understand uh, some of the elements that it takes to, uh, to bring about that sort of change. Awesome, awesome. And Dan? Thank you. Yes, uh, so I'm Daniel Lickie. I've been working in and around uh, the public sector for the last 10 years or so, uh, and the last five years uh, primarily uh, focused on uh, health and social care um, and the, the all-round general tech for good space. Uh, so I've worked for the NHS in a, in a couple of roles, um, and as well as uh, working with various different parts of the NHS uh, in consultancy capacity in, in other projects. Awesome, awesome. So we have a, a breadth of experience, different backgrounds, it's awesome. So we are just gonna get straight into it because that's what we're here for. So Rita, I'm gonna direct the first question to you. Uh, guys, feel free to drop in with some comments. So Rita, how do you bring your teams together for maximum success? Okay, that's a nice big question, Jay. Thanks very much. Um, okay, so I think to start with um, my involvement in this kind of work, generally is a place where I'm working with leaders who are either about to commence a significant program of delivery um, and uh, or they are actually looking at building an organization that's going to be fit to deliver that kind of aspiration. Uh, in, in partnering in the health tech environment what's really interesting is that people are so passionate about what it is they're there to deliver that some of the technical focus um, is put in favour of actually what we're trying to accomplish to deliver those changes and those new services. So um, what I've been fortunate to do is to bring a background in other types of sectors and that business background to this world where we're discussing, well, what is the shared purpose and vision? What is it you're actually trying to accomplish rather than we're just going to introduce a piece of tech that might change something? It's much broader than that. And so bringing the teams together, having a cohesive leadership team has been quite critical. And in the spirit of transparency, that hasn't always been the case when I've gone to work with organizations. They very much 
being leaders of their own function and discipline, and to some extent have worked in isolation uh, to the big picture view. Um, the intent is always fabulous, but the ways of working are sometimes out of sync. And so some of the best work has been about bringing those teams together and really trying to understand from a broader perspective what they're trying to accomplish. In doing so, it's always about starting with the people. So once you're very clear about the product and the service that you're trying, you know, you're looking to deliver and what benefits that's going to deliver to uh, whoever the, the user is and the purpose for delivery, it's then truly looking at who have you got in order to help you deliver that outcome. And that may be a discrete piece of work or it may be a very significant change in program. So certainly had the privilege to work with Dan when we were at NHS.UK and looking at how those different teams came together eventually in order to deliver those amazing patient facing services. So looking and doing a discovery on the skills, the expertise and the excellence you've got within your existing organisation is certainly one of the things that I got involved in. But of course, in doing that, you come across a hybrid organisation where you may have a combination of contractors and permanent employees. And once again, that brings a great opportunity because you may have parachuted in some very specific expertise to help develop and enhance what you're there to, to do. But at the same time, it mustn't be to the detriment of those who have you know, expertise in another field already permanent inside the organisation. So sometimes my work has been around how you get those teams to work more cohesively together in order to deliver the desired outcome. So skills discovery is looking at pockets of excellence, um, clearly making sure that the respective teams understand the differing roles and remit that each other has. You'll be amazed at how people make an assumption about what somebody else may or may not be doing based on a job title. But in different organisations, those roles can mean different things. And that can also lend itself to things like the governance, the reporting, the way information is shared. Um, those who believe they ought to have a view and that view ought to be taken forward. So again, it's about that sense of clarity around roles and responsibilities. So it's twofold. You've got an external focus, which is around what are we here to deliver? What's the product, the service, the outcome that we're here to deliver? But internally, are we set up to deliver that? And that's just not technical competence. That's about the way we do stuff around here. That's the culture. That's about pulling together and ensuring that decision making is joined up. And of course, the last thing I would add at this point is there's a really important group of people called stakeholders and constituents, other people who have a vested interest in what you're working on. And some of those people um, can say that one thing that can turn the whole thing on its head and take it into another direction. So, you know, Sandeep on, on the panel here is really important because when you're involving clinicians, when you're involving those who are directly going to be a recipient or user of the technology, they have play a pivotal role in helping you get to the end point. So building those meaningful relationships across your organisation, both internally and externally, as early as you can, is quite critical. Um, and giving people a voice and listening to what they have to say. Um, but helping them understand that they may contribute to a dialogue, but they may not necessarily design the end game. So it's about being really clear about the purpose and involvement that different people have in the team that you're bringing together to deliver that particular outcome. 
they could of course go on at large. So I don't know if that's enough for now, um, or I can build on what some of the other guys are going to say. But generally speaking, it's about, you know, because of this passion, making sure that it, there's not an imbalance between, between delivering what you really care about, and making sure that it's viable. I think it's about making sure you really have got the right people involved and that that team is joined up. It's not standalone functions. It's actually a cohesive joined up team. It's about making sure that internally your processes and your ways of working are not working against what you're trying to do. And I think it's also making sure that, I'm going to mention it, although it's very sensitive, there is some commercial rigor around what you're here to do because sometimes people are so passionate about what they're working on and they want to make slight tweaks and changes, but actually commercially, it then is no longer viable to be able to deliver that service or deliver that promise if it's not actually well managed in, in a rounded way. So um, they would be the areas that I would kick off with, Joe. Does that answer your question? <laughs> it does, it does. And I think that actually Sandeep, it, it's quite interesting because mentioning you, you will be coming at it from a different position, right? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I've been in the system, been a clinician, and obviously had those changes done to myself, um, or with me, hopefully, when, whilst I was a clinician. But now, obviously, coming at it from a different angle, you know, being a, a product developer or a company that delivers product or service in, into an organization, I think I have the empathy uh, for the end users um, and for the clinicians on the ground. And I think that's part of the reason why we've been quite good at understanding that comms and engagement with these end users is, is a critical critical part of what Risa's saying, you know, and she's saying, you know, decisions got to be joined up and the stakeholders have to be involved from a very, very early stage and they need to feel a part of that process. Um, so for example, you know, delivering medic bleep into, into a trust, what we always do first and foremost is, you know, um, talk to the clinicians and say, look, this is what we're thinking about doing. You know, it's, it's not signed off, it's, it's not done. We're not, we're not doing this without your, you know, you know, any reassurances that you might need. Here's the risks that have been brought up in previous engagements with other clinicians, and this is how we're mitigating them. So we start off on the, on, on the front foot and say, look, we know there's challenges. And actually that, that then gets them understanding that we're empathetic and they engage a lot better with us in these sort of workshops and sessions that we have. Um, but again, it also gives us a bit more of a firm position to say, you know, you're contributing, but you're, you're not going to be uh, holding uh, the, you know, the destiny of this is not in your hands. Um, so it's a, it's a nicer way to be able to do that and to deliver that. Uh, but I completely agree with Rita on that. Oh, that's really good. And what's interesting, though, is which leads me to my next question for Sandeep, actually, in, in the challenges. You know, what are the barriers that you found uh, from either side that prevent the teams from high performing? Yeah, so I think uh, a lot of tech companies that I've seen in healthcare and, you know, we've been we've been one of those at, at the very early onset that we have formed. Um, you, you, you see uh, Silicon Valley tech companies, right? And you think, okay, look, you know, you build it and, and they'll come, right? That, that's a typical, typical sort of uh, mantra that, that tech companies have. But when you get into the healthcare space, actually the tech is only 10, 15, 20% of the entire solution, right? The, the actual solution involves a lot of change. It involves that engagement. It involves rewriting um, standard operating procedures. 
um, it involves talking to the end users and making sure the clinical safety um, and the rigor behind all of that clinical safety um, is robust. The governance um, is, is critical, you know, if, especially if you're moving away from something like pages and moving on to mobile working, which is which hasn't happened. You know, we're, we're not really mobile working or set up for that in the NHS. So how do you make sure you do that robustly? Um, and because not only is um, you know, patient safety at risk here, but actually, you know, clinicians and healthcare staff have got so tired of tech going wrong in, in healthcare. Anything more that, that goes wrong, you know, um, they disengage. So you don't want that for the future of technology in the health and care space. Yeah. Um, but you know, not having not having that change management expertise um, is I think is, uh, is, is a downfall of, of many, um, but also building up partnerships. So, you know, you've got to understand if you're building a company, a tech company, where, where's your boundaries in all of this? So again, for example, we're a software technology company and we can do the change element on, on that, but we rely so heavily on the infrastructure being right. So the 3G, 4G, Wi-Fi, and that's not our remit, you know? Um, so how do we, um, how do we partner with the right organizations to, to enable that? And on the other side, scaling up, you know, we know we need people to get involved and deliver the change, but can we as an organization scale up our change uh, processes quick enough? Or do we actually partner with the right individuals like Different, for example, um, or other organizations? Um, and I think understanding where you need to scale up as a company uh, and where do you partner? Is, is a critical element of it as well. No, that's really interesting. I think um, that with uh, performance disengaging, you do lose performance straight away. That's it. Um, Dan, you haven't spoken yet. So have you got anything to say there? Yeah, I think there's, there's, a, there's a bit of a theme that runs through both of those sort of uh, those topics straight away. So, um, and interesting, one of the questions that's been submitted through the Q&A uh, brings it together for me quite nicely. So if you want to get teams uh, pulling together, right, uh, to the, the topic that Rita spoke about, um, you need to over, be able to overcome the barriers that Sandy's just talked about. Um, and one of the things that I think, um, certainly from, uh, from bringing the teams together point of view, is absolutely crucial, is that focus on user needs um, that's come through on Q&A. Um, it's really important to, to understand that there's going to be uh, a vision uh, there's, right, there's got to be a purpose to what you're trying to achieve. And if that vision is clouded, okay, if it's not well understood um, and it's not driven by user needs, then the message will get lost and the teams won't be able to perform. They won't be interested in getting over the barriers, whatever they might be, whether they're tech or cultural or, or just the, the challenge full stop. If you haven't got that clear vision focused around what it is that you're trying to deliver for the users, then you won't be able to bring them together. I mean, there's, there's tons of technical barriers and, and, and everything else and, and governance barriers within certain within some of the NHS restrictions. Um, bureaucracy getting in the way, business cases taking years to put together and having to be planned out for, for years in advance. All of these are barriers that you need to overcome to, to make deliveries happen. But without that focus on a clear goal of what it is that you're trying to achieve, then you, you just won't, you just can't. Okay. Okay. Can I just add to that, Joe? I'm just going to say, Dan. I think the 
the key point about some of those um, processes that have you know, really long timelines uh, historically, I think what's quite interesting now on the backdrop of operating within a pandemic and operating where you have to move that pace in order to deliver things that would have normally taken you three months to get signed off. So, you know, there's, there's a message in there somewhere that talks about it being possible and it can happen. However, it is absolutely dependent on a sense of clarity and contextualizing what you're there for. And that's what I meant by also saying, you know, the product is the, the product, but for what purpose are you doing it? What is it? Is it that you're delivering new services? Is it that you're actually going to no longer be offering something that you did before? You know, so it's making sure that that's understood. And, you know, I will always say that the leadership that sits around that absolutely needs to pull together and not just set the vision and strategy, but to continuously redirect and direct those and give them the confidence and the assurance that they are on track. Because certainly in the backdrop of health, and, and subjects and topics that people are really passionate about, what sometimes happens, people get so excited and focused that they start to do it according to what they think they that ought to be happening, rather than what's been shared, agreed, and is evolving in the moment. So I think that undercurrent of comms and engagement has to be pulled out as an explicit piece as well. So there's some great examples where you know the show and tells go on and lots more collaboration today than ever before but making sure that it is once again linked back to vision, linked back to strategy, linked back to purpose, so that you keep that real harness uh, activity, otherwise it can go off the rails. And when we're having to operate at much faster pace today, we cannot afford for that to happen. So it's coming up with those new ways in which you keep people focused and, and busy on the right stuff as well. Awesome, I mean, you guys have uh, nailed that question a little bit. But off the back of that, Rita, and you guys are providing me with great segues here, um, especially in the climate today, Dan, we can't not, once again, we can't not talk about the pandemic, the COVID-19, but what are the things that we can positively do um, with our teams with that? Because we can't ignore that that changes everything. And as Rita said, we have to be faster. We have to accelerate everything in such a way. And as Sandeep said, you know, NHS isn't built for mobile working yet, but we need to be there already. Yeah, I, th I think the, um, the situation this year has probably thrown um, uh, remote working or remote technologies forward probably 10 years um, in six months within the NHS. Um, and that's not to say that it's all been good as well. There's been a lot of there's been a lot of bad done um, to make good things happen um, during this year, and, and you know there's tons of that in the media. I'm not going to talk about any of that. What you what I want to talk about is, is what you've mentioned is like the good things, right? The positive things that can be done. So we're talking about building teams. If you want to build teams in this complex environment, you've got to be able to adapt to personal needs, right? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's amusing when uh, somebody's cat walks across the camera and they're on a Zoom call. Yeah, it, it, it's funny when you can hear their kids screaming in the background. But that's because work is now happening in people's homes, right? And you've got to be acceptance of that. You've got to be more flexible. If you're going to be leading a team, you've got to be able to adapt the, the function of that team to individuals' needs. Right. So if you're, if you're used to scheduling a stand-up at 8.30 in the morning for a team, right? But now people, because they are at home, they've got to, they've got to look after their kids who might not be in school. 
that might not be an appropriate time. They might be because of different childcare arrangements, the staggered openings of school attendances, things like that. School runs now might have to happen at different times. You've got to be able to adapt and move on and flex people's needs. One of the biggest challenges for me is keeping engagement up, right? Um, when you're, everybody, I hate the phrase, but the water cooler chat, everybody talks about how important water cooler chat is in an office location. Um, for me, it's not that. For me, it's the personal interactions, right? Um, those um, those off-the-cuff conversations about work, not just about other, you know, the water cooler chat, um, those things that you can talk about about your projects within your project teams. Um, those quick conversations are easy, they flow natural. So being able to capture that in some positive, you know, let's be clear, planned way, um, in your remote teams is really, really important. Being able to get those regular interactions, being able to have those regular check-ins, whether they're one-to-one -one or one-to-many within teams, having those, having the, the established meetings so that things are, you know, let's be clear, very forced. You've got to be deliberate with this. You, you've got to be very clear on why you're trying to do something. Um, it's not just a, a phone call or a Zoom call for the sake of, of it. Um, have those regular check-ins. Have aims for what they're trying to achieve and that will build that positive environment within a team to bring people together it keeps them focused on what they're trying to achieve there's a real importance in um, providing people with the level of authority and autonomy um, that, so that they can act on their own because although you're part of a team you've got to be empowered when you're working on your own to get on with your own work and make sure things happen there's responsibility that comes with that. You know, people have got to be accountable for what they're, what they're doing. They've got to have uh, agreed tasks, et cetera, to deliver. But then you've got to give people a bit of freedom and a bit of autonomy to, to, to govern their own uh, delivery. I mean, yes. <laughs> I, I think we can all agree that we've all experienced the cats. We've all experienced the kids. We've ex Everybody's had that experience in one way or another. Um, but Sandy, being from a clinici clinician background, is that the same experience for you guys or is it slightly different? Yeah, so look, you know, with the two hats, so from the clinical hat, of course, you know, I think, um, you know, medicine, delivering medicine or care is obviously, you know, just you can't do it remotely, sadly. Um, not much, you know, much of it you can't do remotely. Uh, of course, you can do telemedicine and sure, that's really helped during the pandemic but much of it is about those relationships that you have with your patients and much of it is about you know being able to examine and, and have them in front of you but from the tech side of things you know actually as a company we've always been set up across four different geographies and time zones um, as remote working so since inception you know 2015 we've not actually had an office space uh, at all um, and that's with 30 30 team members but what that needs and what that requires to enable that is as daniel said requires some serious rigor behind it so we have you know daily stand-ups where we, we have those meetings and everyone can talk about their challenges whether that's management whether that's tech or whatever that might be and then you know i you know um, with my head of ops or with my cto etc will have one-to-one uh, -one meetings every single week you know 15 20 minutes and there's a clear agenda for those for those not water cooler chats but you know meaningful interactions um because you know my cto is up in scotland for example or my head of ops is in, in india right so i mean we can't get across you know i'm in london um so we need to have these um 
have these schedules. Of course, don't get me wrong, they can call me up at any point and, um, and we'll, we can still have a conversation, but there needs to be more purpose and intent behind it to set up that remote working. And of course, how do you deliver to the NHS and how do you deliver this change into the NHS um, whilst the pandemic's going on and as low a touch point as possible? So we've had to reimagine a lot of our delivery mod model, for example, as well. Um, so, you know, instead of uh, the heavier um, sort of model of change, you know, 70% of it is now delivered more remotely. And then that 30% for, for the deeper change for it to happen and for it to really embed is still uh, very much on the ground. But 70% of it we've taken away and doing it remotely. Just to add on to that point, actually, um, I think we talk about user needs, but just to pull on from the, the remote workforce, um, I think we've got to start asking our teams what they need. So if their technical competence is not up for debate, they're on, they're on, the, they're on the gig because they're there to deliver an outcome. But actually, we're asking to operate in an environment that some people wouldn't choose to. And so it's about, I think the examples Dan gave are, are great, but, but, but I think it's regularly checking in and, and, and actually having that, it's beyond duty of care now. It's about what is it you need in able to be able to operate at your best to deliver what it is we've committed to do. And it's about those reasonable adjustments, of course it is. But I think that it's, it's about creating that environment where people are gonna feel comfortable with be able to say that, you know, this week I'm not feeling so great. It's my reality, actually. My work isn't up for debate, but you know, I may be quieter on the calls than I would be normally. And so I think it's about how do you create the environment and the conditions for people to perform in these current circumstances? You know, if, if they've got the, the skill and the, the competence to fulfill the role, that's one thing. But assuming that they can do that in this environment compared to another environment shouldn't be assumed. And I think that in the one-to-ones that managers, people managers are having, or in some of the leadership meetings that you have is, is add that topic to the agenda to ensure that it's not forgotten. Um, you know, I personally put in things like plan to be spontaneous. So I'll, I'll, uh, that's actually a, a known meeting in my, uh, in my week now, <laughs> because it's, you know, it may be that there's nothing to say, but, but to allow that time to just have that free flow dialogue about work that I would have had if I'd walked past your desk is important to me. So I think it's making things as well. That's really interesting because I think that we can all, everybody that's uh, probably listening can all uh, experience the same thing, which is having to find ways to make it a positive experience. But eventually you do have that, uh, your, your tolerance, your window tolerance does kind of <laughs> dissipate a little bit and then you go, no more Zoom calls. <laughs> Um, okay, uh, thank you for the questions. Now we do have some questions um, from some people already. We are going to uh, head to that and head to the to the audience for that. So we've got uh, one from Randall. If you put your hands up, and we can ask you as well, Randall. I'm actually going to ask you to uh, say it aloud. So if you want to give us your question. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah. Sweet. Um, so yeah, thank you. That was really, really interesting stuff from each of you. Um, I think one of my questions really, that was a couple that I had, but, um, one is that you, you know, you naturally have different types of people who work, uh, in their own sorts of ways within teams, um, you know, from strategic leader types through to kind of heads down 
almost what I'd say kind of developer managed service type people who prefer just to get on with a task at hand and not um, necessarily kind of strategic um, thinking in that sense. Um, not as a general rule, devs or not all devs are like that, just, you know, you do get um, different types of individuals within your teams. So how do you ensure really that that composition of individuals that you've got um, are used effectively to deliver and maintain services in the long term? I'll take that one. Um, I had a, an experience where I was doing a skills review of, of people that had very different preferred work styles and uh, referencing the example you've given there, Rand, actually. And I remember um, the guy saying, I don't even like doing peer, peer coaching. I don't even like anyone sitting by the side of me. So I don't particularly want to be involved in um, some of the things that I'm being asked to, to go to, i.e. meetings. And, and I think it's about acknowledging and accepting that people have their preferred way of working, but at the same time, um, understanding that their presence at meetings is really important because they may be able to help join the dots that previously wouldn't have happened if they weren't in the meeting. So it's always about making sure that you are, you know, recognising that people have different styles and ways of working. Um, but they all bring something different to the team. And so it's about understanding what that is. And that's why I think things like understanding the team, di team dynamics, uh, preferred ways of working, some of the stuff that people call soft uh, side of development is as critical as you know, growing knowledge and expertise in a particular other area. So I think it's about really getting to know your people and their preferred ways of working. And if it is out of sync with what you're going to need them to do, is help them understand what your needs are and then collaborate together on how they may be able to pull that, fulfill that to some extent. So that's the approach that I've always taken. Um, I'll add a, a little bit to that, Rita, as well. So um, I think it, I, I, I regularly, when I'm talking in some of my training sessions, I talk about the pioneers, settlers and town planners model of, of where to align certain people. Now, for, for those who might not be familiar with it, pioneers are people who are happy to work on the leading edge of technology, the leading edge of process. They're happy to fail. They're happy to learn and, and develop new things. Settlers more happy to work on something that's been developed by somebody else that they can then make bigger, make better, make more, more repeatable. And then you've got the town planners who are much more happy to take what's been developed and scale it to build the infrastructure, to build the underpinning. Now, that's a, a, a real nice model that aligns with a, a lot of the strategy stuff that, that I talk about. But what, on the flip side of it, what I think is really important for people to understand is what you are. What sort of person are you? What makes you happy when you're at work? So if you are one of these people who, who is a pioneer type, who loves to work on the, the fast pace, the quick iterating, um, fail and learn type approach, but that you're stuck running the back of house infrastructure of something that is going, never going to change for years and years on end. You might be brilliant at it, but you're probably not going to enjoy it as much as you would if you were doing something else. So I think it's really important for, for people, whatever role they're in, whatever level they're in at a business, to be able to make that judgment call about who they are and how they can adapt their ways of working or, or, or look to change what they're working on to make it better for them. That's brilliant. Thank you. Um, I don't know if there are other questions asked, but almost like a follow-up, uh, Joe, if you don't mind me asking. Um, it's just that, you know, with, you've got, um, you've all been involved in um, high performance delivery teams. Uh, what have you found has worked when trying to measure effectiveness of your delivery teams? Um, and how have you reviewed 
performance against set KPIs or success metrics to ensure that you're consistently um, delivering outcomes, essentially. Can I take that one um, to kick off? Thanks, Randall, for the question. Um, so for effectiveness of a tech team, I guess, you know, well, there's two elements. There's the tech element, and of course, there's the change and delivery side of things. So um, effectiveness for, for tech, how we do it, the KPIs that we built in are mainly around committing code without without bugs. You know, how, how, many, how many lines of code get committed with, with bugs in it? Um, when it goes to quality assurance, for example, um, hitting their deadlines and targets. So, you know, if we're doing a two week sprint, how many are actually, how many sprints are delivered in the year in a two week span or, or not? Um, but also we, we monitor their time um, that they're spending on development because what we don't want them is to get them burnt out. So if they're spending more than eight or nine hours, uh, the allotted time um, regularly, actually that's a sign to us to, to show us that actually they're spending too much screen time and that this is not sustainable. Um, so do we need to bring in more team members to help them or do they need further training? What is actually going on so we can get into the bottom of understanding um, the challenges that they might be facing? You know, um, so for example, you might pick up, actually they're struggling with lone working uh, and they've been low mood and actually they're, they're getting quite depressed which has you know, happened during this COVID and pandemic. You know? um, but if we weren't tracking their commitments, they were hitting all of their other KPIs and targets, but actually they were spending three hours, four hours a day longer than what we'd expected. And yes, in three months time, they would have been burnt out. Um, so protecting them uh, from this burnout uh, early on is really important as, as a company and organization. On the delivery end of things, I think some of the key metrics, of course, is you know um, the churn of your customer churn, um, the user adoption, you know how how they're using your your product and the engagement, the the feedback that's coming from them regularly. Um, so, you know, actually we've got a service which is a communication platform, right? So we regularly check in with customers using that platform, and reach out to them and just message them to ask them how they're getting on with it. And typically, we have we look at our analytics and see we can see who, who might be struggling on our platform, you know, and we typically engage with that 10% that are struggling the most on MedicBleep just to help under, us understand what can we make better from the platform end and actually then feedback to the, to the client as well to say, look, actually, these guys are feeling undertrained or they're not feeling um, that they understand mobile working and how to use mobile devices or whatever that challenge might be. And then we buddy them up with, let's say it's a band six nurse who's struggling with medic bleep. We buddy them up with a band six nurse that we can see on the system that is doing really, really well. Yeah. Um, and then over time, three, four weeks, you monitor that person and you can see the effectiveness in using the tool going up for that individual that was originally struggling. Uh, so we use a lot of analytics in the background um, to, to understand the, the sort of metrics. Awesome, thanks Andy. Awesome, thanks for those questions, Randall. Um, we do have a question, Rachel has her hand up, so I'm gonna let her talk. There'll be nothing controversial about this question coming in. It's a novelty for me being this side of the table. 
Um, so really good hearing you, hearing you all, uh, and Joe doing a great, uh, a great uh, job of managing and chairing the panel. My question is about the pandemic at the minute. So we've talked, um, you guys have talked a lot about um, high-performing teams in healthcare, um, and I guess the the question I wanted to ask is um, why have we struggled so much in um, track and trace? test and trace, whatever it's called, uh, in way of getting the team to perform, let alone be high performing. Is that a question of policy issue? Is that a technical challenge? Or is that a wider leadership challenge? Um, I'll, I'll jump in with a, with my take on it if I can. Um, thanks, for that. that's a really good question. And it's a, it, looking from the outside in, all right, so uh, I think there's, there's some obvious um, errors that, um, with my background and my knowledge that I've seen um, that, that occurred in that whole track and trace program. Um, number one was a, a lack of understanding of the tech capability, right? There wasn't a proper understanding of the tech constraints from the leadership who was setting the vision of what they wanted to achieve. The first iteration of it was promising things that were never ever going to be possible in the tech environment that they were operating in. Apple, for instance, were never going to open some of the technology within their hardware to deliver the capability that was being talked about. It was just never going to happen. So there was a, there was an un, there was a lack of understanding of the, the operating landscape. So I think that was one of the things that sort of set it up to fail right at the very start. Once they adapted to those, uh, pivoted their approach and sort of to, 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 to try and swim with the tide with the technology, um, I think that the, the, the biggest problem in it has been that so much of it has been delegated out to third parties in the wrong way. Um, one of my favorite change management cliches is you can never delegate risk. And I think a lot of what they were trying to do was to pile it out onto somebody else who had made promises and then just think they could hold them for responsible for everything when it doesn't work. Um, nobody cares who uh, people, there's, there's loads of stuff in the in social media and in general media and as a whole about how much was spent on track and trace and how much of a failure it's been. Nobody really knows what was spent on it. But the other thing is, nobody really cares who it was that was delivering that. They only hold the government responsible. Whereas the government was, was effectively trying to just say, right, get this built, that'll happen. Now that's, I think the, the, the structure of it, the, uh, the way that it's been, been tried to be delivered, they had the right approach, okay? Maybe, maybe piloting on the Isle of Wight might not have been the most sensible way to do it, but a geographical limited beta was probably the right approach, but it was using the wrong technology. And they, they only realized that the technology wouldn't work once they, once they hit those big barriers. So for me, the, 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 the biggest challenge was how they pivoted around those things and how quickly that happened. Now, you could have said, it works in Singapore, it works in South Korea, it works in Germany, wherever else these people were going, we should have just copied that. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why the NHS struggles so much with new technology is because it doesn't say, well, that works, we'll just do that. Um, there is always an, an idea that perhaps it needs to be something special because the, the NHS is unique. Possibly in the way it's funded compared to other health service bodies around the world, but in terms of what it delivers, in terms of how it delivers it and technology that it needs to deliver it, doesn't need to be special, doesn't need to be unique. They could have adopted other approaches that were more successful and adapted them earlier and quicker. Is anybody else? I feel like Reese has got something to say there. Yeah, I'll just add a generic point, really. I mean, I'm not close to that at all. I'm just seeing what I see 
you know, as a sister and watching the television, but from my perspective, it felt that, and what, hearing what Dan's just said, is it's almost like a classic change issue where they get into building something before they've clearly defined what it is they actually are trying to do here. And I know it's difficult when you're operating at pace, but if one of the strategies is that you're going to get a range of providers to help you create what's going to be one thing, then actually, again, those constituents, those people involved in that, probably were not brought together. And the sense of clarity around what we're actually here for and the fact that that may be a phased thing and that it, keeping the public informed to the extent of, of what they need to know, rather, they don't need to know everything. They just, it's about managing that expectation. I'm frustrated in everything I listen to because I understand it from a business point of view, which is you're not telling people enough or you're telling them too much. And therefore what you're doing is building people so-called experts when they're not and so actually it's about saying okay why has this appeared to fail what is it that we did really well where did it fall over and where did we make those adjustments but often enough it's because they've moved straight into creating something before they've clearly agreed and set out what it is there for and what it's not there for and and so that's just me surmising but that was just what i picked up from, from the points that dan was raising Okay, so Rach, we've um, they, we've had Dan and, and Rita a answer that question somewhat. We've got James, who's actually got a follow-up question. James, do you want to push that to the panel? James? Sorry, can you hear me now? There we go. Sorry, I was on mute myself. <laughs> um, yeah, it seems like we're kind of quick we always run into these same pitfalls um when we're trying to accelerate the launch of a new product or service and we kind of don't look to our past failures to to understand what went wrong previously why do you think that is i'll be quick <laughs> i'm just going to say from a kickoff point of view it's probably because some of those people have moved on james and you don't always you know years ago when you'd put your standard operating procedures together and your lessons learned and all those kinds of things, you had something to go back on and have a look at. And so I do wonder whether what's captured in terms of, um, you know, the iterations of work and the changes that are made along the way, whether they're ever kept anywhere for people to look at for future reference, because actually the actual people that maybe have led on it or been involved in that previous work may no longer be around. So um, I, I think that's one of the key things. We all use our tacit knowledge and our legacy ways of working all the time in what we do. Um, and I think we probably just build on that. But I think it's about going to those who perhaps were involved in something in a previous life that was similar to see what they learn if it hadn't been captured, then perhaps, you know, like we normally say, anyone had this experience before and, and to capture some of that early on. I don't think that really happens. I'd, yeah, I'd add to that because I think Sandy's going to have much more to say on this than me and much more important stuff. But what I would say is, for me, I think the corporate memory is one bit that, that Rita spoke about and that, the, the way that that functions. But for me, I think that when you're talking about accelerating the launches of things, it's why. Um, and I think that the, 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 the prioritisation that comes from the top you know, with a lot of government and healthcare services is that the, the reason for accelerating might not be the right thing to do. Um, and that what is an what is an effective minimum viable product or service um 
is not necessarily what's pushed forward. There's the, the priorities might be wrong. Um, and I think that's where a lot of the time you, you run into those same problems, but Sandy, better for the product than me. No, to be honest, it, it's been covered by Rita and Daniel, you know, uh, organizational memory. Um, I just don't think that organizational memory um, was there. Um, and that's why, you know, from MP fit, I get, I guess, and test and test and trace, I just don't think that organizational memory was carried forward. Um, and maybe that's the people changing, you know, it's been what, 10, 15 years since that program. Um, but also, I, I do understand the pressures um, that the NHS was under. So, you know, let's not take that away from them. You know, there was a lot of pressure and of course it's high stakes um, and mistakes do happen and, and it's okay to also accept those mistakes, but possibly the, the you know, the, the way the product was built, I'm not quite sure because I'm not close to it, but again, that's why you do not a waterfall method of building a product. You do a, an agile method, you know, and I don't know how much of that agile method was followed, especially with all these stakeholders and entities in place trying to build that product out. Um, but I would have looked at, you know, as Daniel said, what is that MVP, you know, and how quickly can we get there? Um, and then how many sprints can we then build uh, to the full fledged um, sort of product that we need uh, as the end product? Um, I don't think we got to that MVP quick enough. Does that answer your question, James? Yeah, around knowledge retention and the deeper understanding of why, yeah. Awesome, thank you for that. Um, okay, so we have come to uh, the time. So I really wanna thank you guys. It has been really interesting, especially with firing those uh, lovely track and trace questions to you. Um, so really do appreciate it. Everybody, this is being recorded. So that will come out in the next couple of days. And if you do have any further questions for these guys, an email will go out with their contact details so you can hammer them with more. So thank you very much guys and enjoy the rest of your afternoon. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you, everybody.